I'm Cindy Levy, and this is the Barney's Podcast, the show that celebrates fashion, style, culture, but most of all, the personalities who create those things every single day. By any account, Cameron Russell is one of the most successful models in the world. She's walked for Chanel, Versace, Prada, you name it, and she's a regular in magazines like Vogue and W. But she did not start off dreaming of a career in modeling. Since I was maybe four, I thought I wanted to be president. So I, you know, (laughs) I was like, okay, well, if I move to New York, there's a lot of electoral votes there, so that would be a great state to be from. In the years she has been working as a model, Cameron has used her platform to speak up about everything from white privilege to climate change. And more recently, as the Me Too movement rippled across film, comedy, and politics, she helped bring a long-overdue reckoning to the fashion industry, sharing her own story of sexual harassment and inviting others to do the same. She's also helped organize other models through a collective called the Model Mafia. When I sat down with Cameron, we talked about some pretty heavy topics, as well as the consequences she's faced for speaking out. But we had to start with the fun stuff. What are you wearing today? Well, I'm wearing jeans and a long sleeve shirt because it's fall, so I got overexcited about fall. And it turns out that it's really still summer and I'm kind of hot. And I'm wearing some clogs. I love a clog. I know you like a walk in Prospect Park with yes. your with your new baby. It's- I love a long walk. I always need a shoe. Like, the ideal shoe is the shoe that you can wear to work, then you can walk 15 miles to your event and still look fabulous. Literally 15 miles? Yes. Has this occurred? Well, when I went to Columbia, I used to walk from school and then go all the way downtown to whatever downtown event that I had. Five miles in high-heeled clogs is really impressive. So I need to always find, I need to always be in the shoe that works for all. But you know what? Now we just wear cool sneakers. Like if your sneakers are clean, then it's acceptable. Yeah. So let's talk about your incredibly multifaceted career. So you started modeling when you were 16. Mm -hmm. But before that, I hear you had a dream to be president. Oh, yeah. That was since I was maybe four. I thought I wanted to be president. Mm -hmm. And then I started modeling, and I think that revealed how power and money work in a way that isn't fair. Mm. And that made me less interested in presidency, if those two things can be connected, but they were for me. Yeah, I think all kinds of power are connected. When you first took the your first modeling gig and thought, well, I'll give this a go, um, and it was all new for you, did you think, well, this is step one along my path to being president? Yeah, I always was scheming. So I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, well, if I move to New York, there's a lot of electoral votes there. So that would be a great state to be from. You chose New York because there were <laughs> electoral votes? I really had like a whole strategy, but I was like, that's East slide, Coast. You know, smart. I'm going to need some time. And maybe, you know, in the South or the Midwest, my grandma lives in Florida. That's a big state. Maybe I can spend some time there. I had a strategy. You know, New York and California are fashion states. Also, the network of people that could be funding your campaign. <laughs> and were you were you open about this? Like, did you discuss this with totally you, your roommates, your friends when you first moved to New York? You know, I realized when—I realized this in retrospect. I think part of the reason I talked about being—wanting to be president— is because I wanted to be treated like someone who could become president. Mm. And I think in a democracy, everyone is supposed to be treated like that. That's the point of a democracy. Anyone can become president. Um, And so I would be on a shoot and I'd say, you know, I don't want to wear that look because I'm going to become president. And that would really throw people. You'd literally say that out loud. I would say that out loud. And people were not amused 
as you might think they were. They were usually like, that's really annoying, and we need you to wear this tiny bikini. And I would say, uh, I might be president, and I don't want to have this on the cover of Time. You know, American culture just isn't there yet, and this is too risky. Um, and so I'd have my 16-year-old explanation. That is, that, I'm sorry, that is so awesome in every in every conceivable way. I love that you were pushing back like that. I love th- that you were doing it because you were thinking about your future. Yeah. Although I do also— And then all that went out the window, so, you know. Well— how did it go out the window? Oh, it was a slow, a slow decline. At first, I was like, you know, I'm not going to wear bikinis. But then the first job that I ever showed up to was a bikini shoot. And I said, I've never worn a bikini. And they said, okay, so then here's your first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, just from then on, then they offer you money to do a bikini shoot, and then you do it. So those things kind of got eroded. And I would say I'm also not a particularly modest person, but I was doing those things Truly, because I was thinking strategically about my political future. It sounds sort of ridiculous. Well, I think, you know, we now know you as a real political voice and a champion for other models and for issues that you care about. A lot of people really started listening to you in 2012 when you gave a TED Talk called Looks Aren't Everything. Believe me, I'm a model. What was that about? So in that talk, I structured it by answering 10 questions that I get frequently asked And I use those as a jumping off point to talk about the privilege that comes with beauty and with whiteness and even how those two things are constructs of our current culture. And what was the response? The response was overwhelming. You know, I was talking about really why I have this privileged access to media. And then in saying that, I received so much media attention. So it was really like a, that's what I was talking about. Going back to modeling in general, for those of us who don't do it, what does it feel like when it goes well? What's a really great day on a job feel like for you? I think one of the cool things about modeling is that it's, and and even this is maybe true about fashion, fashion and modeling are very physical. Getting to do a job where you don't talk and you are communicating in other ways is exciting and challenging and really the opportunity for a very intimate collaboration with the other creatives on set when it goes well. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're working with a photographer who has respect for you and is really interested in what fashion is, what type of performance, what it looks like to perform our gender, what it looks like to perform our sexuality, what it looks like to perform certain characters, that can be really exciting because I think there's not a lot of other opportunities to do that. Mm -hmm. So when it goes well, I think that's what it looks like. So can you think of over the years of some of those, you know, positive, powerful collaborations, those really great moments on set? There's lots of moments. So after shooting the product campaign with Steve Mizell for a week in a darkened studio, you know, where the windows are covered because of light, the very last day was the day that we were going to do video. They said, you know, you just kind of ad-lib like you're at an audition reading lines and here's like a couple example lines and they are all kind of disconnected strange sentences and just throw in other lines that you want. And so I was starting to feel antsy and I just completely went for it. And I'm like crawling across the stage and there's, you know, like a hundred people there with the sound and the lights. I think I need a drink. But we're in the middle of a desert. And I felt like this is really a hilarious moment where I'm like, you know, just being just. wild and going for it. And that was pretty funny. Uh, you know, I always love working with Inez and Venud. I worked mm-hmm. with them for a long time. 
I had this kind of reflection moment when I was working with them maybe a year ago. And it's because we are collaborators, both as a model and photographer, but also I've collaborated with them when I am a writer and a producer and they're the photographer. Mm -hmm. And that creative collaboration that we've had, and then going from that and going back to a modeling collaboration really reinforced for me that there are moments when it's exciting and powerful to be a model mm -hmm. and to have that performance when it feels really respectful. And I think that's such an important thing to draw out because it's not, I think, how we think of models. Mm -hmm. um, and if we don't talk about what this job can be and how powerful it can be, then it's hard for us to know where to go next, where to grow it. Mm. Let's talk about what it's been like traditionally for a lot of models coming up. And you've been very open about a lot of your own experiences. And last fall, you collected um, stories from your fellow models who were open in sharing their tales of sexual harassment. And you used the hashtag, my job should not include abuse. Um, and you know, you're, you said your DMs were just overflowing with, mm -hmm. with people and you published a lot of those accounts anonymously on, on your Instagram. Um, you know, underage girls being pressured into having sex with photographers, being, you know, forced to be nude when they were clear that they didn't want to be, being asked to spend the night at a photographer's or an agent's home as opposed to being put up in a hotel. You know, that was really a pivotal moment in the fashion industry's Me Too movement, which I would say is still sort of in its beginning moments, mm -hmm. not even really, mm -hmm. it, it's certainly not over. Um, tell us a little bit about what you experienced on set when you, you know, particularly when you were younger, when you were a teenager, and how you thought about it at the time. There was a particular moment for me where I realized that this shouldn't be the norm. I was working with a corporate client. They had a studio inside their corporate headquarters. And so on the wall of the kitchen where we would go to take a break, they had, by law, you know, labor laws, which include what sexual harassment is. And I was standing in the kitchen with another model, and we were reading what sexual harassment the description is. And I said, sort of jokingly, oh, you know, come read this. It reads like our job description. And, you know, we were kind of laughing about it. Like it was like, you know, inappropriate language or inappropriate touch. And if you're a model, I mean, people are constantly touching you and saying completely outrageous things that in other workplaces certainly would be classified as sexual harassment. But we were reading this thing, joking that it was our job description. And then when I got home, I thought, wait a second. It shifted how I understood what I had to tolerate. Mm. And so... After that day, I remember just being empowered around being able to describe what sexual harassment was. So mm -hmm. when someone would do something, I would just call it out because I was like, oh, well, I didn't know this was a norm. Now I know it's a norm, so mm -hmm. I'm going to call it out. And I actually think one of the things that that social media campaign with all those stories being shared did was help create norms in our industry and give other women access to those norms because we don't all know them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that we, we have to have lots more, you know, basically a collective storytelling. Mm -hmm. This is very true of the work 
that I did last year around my job is not abuse, that hashtag, and what we have seen with Me Too and what we have seen with Believe Women is that collective storytelling right now is what's turning the boat. And it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm so inspired by that right Mm -hmm. now and the possibility that that holds because collective storytelling shifts power in this way that is profound. Mm -hmm. One of the things that struck me in a recent um, very comprehensive piece that Vanessa Friedman did for the New York Times on um, how far the Me Too movement, if we're going to call it that, has gone in fashion and its status was how few models were willing to use their names um, compared to other industries. And certainly there are many industries where it's very, very difficult for women to come forward. That jumped out at me that it still must be uh, you know, an incredibly inhibiting and intimidating environment um, for women. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. People always ask me, oh, did you lose jobs after the TED Talk? And I think, no, I, I got lots of jobs because yeah. now I was like a, a household name in that sense that, you know, fashion is always looking for. But actually, I think probably post doing this campaign, I have lost jobs because it is a conversation that lots of people aren't ready to have. Mm. Um And I think it's really that line that lots of women in fashion haven't come forward. It's not because this isn't what's happening. So that should really just be indicative of how deep and profound this problem is. It's funny because, you know, I've been a model for 15 years and it's not such a big world, high fashion, you know. So everybody knows me um, fairly intimately at this point. So it's kind of a funny, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But I, I think of the of the two very, very visible things that I've done, probably the, the latter is, is a bigger detriment. Mm. So tell me about establishing the model mafia and, and getting women together like that. Was that actually a new thing? So I realized that I had started organizing models 10 years ago, um, leading up to the climate convention that was happening in Copenhagen in 2008. And we made a YouTube video that went viral in for 2008. It was viral. I think it got a million hits in a week. That today is is like small, but uh, no, a, a million <laughs> a million is still major. Yeah. But a million was really yeah. major back then. And the fabulous moment was that it got trashed on Fox News. And then I thought, ah, I know I'm doing something right now. <laughs> she just did the thumbs up sign. <laughs> So that was kind of the beginning of thinking about organizing models and thinking about how together, collectively, we had this fabulous power as both storytellers that we could bring stories from all over the world, which is so important to talking about climate change because climate change is being experienced by some people as an immediate reality. And we need storytellers from the front line. And then for other people, there's other types of connections that models were also talking about, people from Appalachia who are talking about the immediate impacts of pollution, um, or even what jobs are their families going to have next. So being able to bring stories that were both international and national and about the present and about the future is something that models could uniquely do. Mm -hmm. And so that line of thinking sent me down organizing models around sustainability. And then I started to research, you know, really, what does it mean to speak? Because the first reaction to organizing models was you're being very hypocritical. Why? Hypocritical, why? Around sustainability, because Mm -hmm. fashion is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, Around, uh, you know, post-TED Talk, a lot of people said, well, if you know that you have all this privilege, then why continue to use it? Um, 
So that was hypocritical. Meaning if you have criticisms of the modeling right. industry, why do you continue right. to model? Why don't you just quit? Exactly. Um, why don't you just go be president? <laughs> yeah. Like we all know you're going to eventually. <laughs> going back to climate change, you got criticism because people said, well, how can models credibly stand up um, against climate change when fashion is one of the most wasteful industries on earth? What's your response to that? When people challenged me on that, it actually made me go research how dirty is fashion? What are we talking about? Why is it dirty? What does sustainability mean for this industry? And in understanding sustainability in fashion, it really just deepened my understanding of sustainability everywhere mm -hmm. as I was challenged to incorporate lots of the things that we need to fix in fashion throughout our supply chain. And that it really doesn't make sense for an eco-fabric to be produced by hundreds of women who have no rights and aren't making a livable wage. It doesn't make sense for that fabric then to be shipped all over the world with huge carbon footprints. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense if that fabric is stealing someone else's culture and they're not paying the person who designed that textile. There's so many different components. And one of the things that I learned is just how difficult it is to make change at that end of the supply chain because ready-made garments make up 80 to 90% of exports in countries like Cambodia and Bangladesh. And so the government is heavily invested in continuing to have a large supply of cheap labor. And sitting on the other end of the supply chain, I think it's really important for us to think about when we think about transformation, rather than saying, oh, well, then we shouldn't be producing in Bangladesh. No, we, we should, but we should find ways to pay women more there and empower them more. Lots of the work that I have done in fashion around who gets to be visible in front of the camera, I see is really connected to that problem. When we don't have any women of color on our magazine covers here, we don't have women of color who get to lead here. So, yeah. so do you mean <laughs> essentially that the privileging of certain kinds of women within the fashion industry here, thin, white, um, you know, maybe more Western than not, has actually made it easier to kind of disregard what is happening with women all around the world, including those who actually make the clothes? Certainly. And when we think about the issues that we see in very, very high fashion, when we are feeling even isolated on set around a sexual harassment issue, the reality is this is not an isolated event. This is because we work in an industry that relies on gendered exploitation and actually racist exploitation because most of those women are women of color who are not making a livable wage in any of the countries where fashion operates. Mm -hmm. And so I try to connect all those things in my work because people, um, I think, like to have very, very simple stories around, oh, Cameron, we want to talk to you about, say, climate change, or we want, you know, this this other model does such a good job talking about race and inclusion. But all these stories are connected really intimately. Mm -hmm. So your organizing of models started around climate and that Copenhagen moment, but then you started the model mafia. When was that and, and how did it come to be? So two years ago, I was with another model named Anya Campbell, and she had been organizing a series of talks called Beyond the Runway. And after the event, I was talking with Anya, and we were just saying, we need more of this. Mm -hmm. This is so beautiful. Um, so then 45 got elected. 
<laughs> and we got on a phone call with each other because we had been receiving, both of us, lots of emails from models asking, how can we become activists in this moment? How do we use our voice together? And so it was actually in response to both those things, this real desire for community and a desire for a, a collective voice that we just opened a little listserv, we started doing events. And what was really a beautiful moment for me was with my three-week-old or four-week-old completely not looking at email, I checked in one afternoon during a nap, and so many things had been organized on that list, and I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And that was this really beautiful moment where Anya and I knew this is a community that's really leaderful, mm -hmm. and now it's coming to fruition. We're seeing that we know each other, we trust each other, and from that place we can take risk. Mm. And that was a really just a, yeah, a beautiful moment. So I totally understand your point that being president is not the be-all and end-all, and there are lots of ways to make change in our culture. I get it. I've been listening. I promise. But are you sure you're not going to run for president? <laughs> you know, we need lots of people to run, but I think the presidency— Congress. You know, here's the thing. Congress? My partner always says, why do you want a seat at the table? The table is not built right. The, you know, the table is slanted. The legs are a mess. It's really dirty. And that actually, we're not even making change at that table. We don't have the tools at the table. We have the tools outside in the garden shed. That's where we all need to be. So I kind of feel like that. I don't know if I want a seat at that table. See you in the garden shed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, they say that you have to ask a woman seven times to run for office before she seriously considers it. So for the record, I've only asked you twice. So five, <laughs> five more to come. <laughs> um, Cameron, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Cindy. You can follow Cameron Russell on Instagram or, of course, see her on billboards or in magazines everywhere. The Barneys podcast is produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. Our associate producer is Oluwakemi Aladasui. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. Yeah, my partner was making fun of me when I left the other day. He said, I think I figured out your style icon. It's JV soccer team captain. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, you've nailed it. And now whenever I get dressed, I feel like I do look like I'm on the JV team. Like, but, it's not even varsity. It's JV. Yeah, dude, that's the part of it I would take issue with. I think you look varsity. 